Welcome to The Rate Debate, a lively discussion from the champions of Australian fixed income, featuring Darren Langer and Chris Rands from Nico Asset Management. Welcome to Episode 5 of The Rate Debate, and thanks for joining us. I'm Darren Langer, Head of Fixed Income at Nico Asset Management, and with me as always is Co-Portfolio Manager Chris Rands. Hello, everyone. In the podcast today, we are going to focus more on how credit markets have fared in recent months, and we have a special guest joining us. It's fair to say with more than 32 years in the industry and 12 years with Nico AM, he has seen pretty much anything credit markets can throw at him. I'd like to welcome our head of credit in Australia, John Sorrell. Hi, Darren, and thanks for having me on the show. Before we hear from John, it's just after the RBA board meeting on the 5th of May 2020, and as expected, the RBA has left monetary policy unchanged but has given us a bit more insight into their thinking about how the economy progresses from here and how effective their emergency policy settings are working. They seemed much more clear on their intention um, this month around future bond buying and certainly uh, avoided talking about tapering. So, Chris, was there anything um, from your side that was unexpected in today's statement? I don't think there was anything unexpected. The RBA is still on the same path that they've laid out for us last month. I would say, though, that the the one comment that was interesting from the the statement that they put out was that they're actually willing to buy more bonds if needed. So this time last month, they were trying to tell us that they could buy less bonds. Now they're trying to tell us they're going to buy more. It's all just starting to sound a little bit confusing on what they're trying to achieve here. Yeah, certainly uh, there are 50 billion and counting. So uh they've certainly uh, been very uh, focused on what they're trying to do. They're still mostly been concentrating on that three to five year part of the curve, but the longer end of the the bond curve seems to have behaved itself a little bit better. um, And they seem much more comfortable that um, the RBA will step in when needed. There wasn't anything more in today's statement about the long end, but that seems to be their their, uh, thrust at the moment. They'll do whatever it takes and then it's stepping away from the market. Yeah, and it's probably also, I guess, important to point out that they're reiterating that they're going to continue buying bonds until they get 2 to 3% inflation. So if you have a look at some of the forecasts that they've come out with, um, we'll, we'll get a better look at these in a couple of months when they redo their statements. But at the moment, they're saying there's going to be a 10% contraction in GDP, a huge increase in unemployment, and inflation is going to drop to some of the lowest levels we've ever seen. So basically, they're telling us that any increase in rates, not that anybody would be really thinking about that at the moment, but when it does come, it's going to be a long time away. Yeah, certainly they indicated um, certainly two years, probably longer um, before that happens. So uh, yeah, it's certainly not going to be any change in monetary policy for some time. And maybe we'll be talking about the same things for months on end. (laughs) (laughs) God, I hope not. (laughs) Anyway, to me, the the thing that was probably different about this statement was what was not in it rather than what was in it. We've seen the Fed in the US, um, the Bank of Japan and the ECB um, go much further in terms of what they're willing to buy. Certainly, there's been a lot more buying of um, credit risky assets um, from some of those other central banks. The RBA still seems reluctant to go down that path. So, John, what are you seeing in terms of spreads and has that had an impact on the local market relative to what's happening offshore? From what I can see, yes, it has had a different uh, impact. It There is certainly less uh, buying of Australian credit than there is of other markets. And so corporate credit, as opposed to bank credit or financial credit, has been uh, underperforming and lagging compared to other markets. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that we've sort of noticed is that uh, Australian issuers seem to be able to access offshore markets where they haven't really tried domestically. Do you think that's going to be an impediment to companies borrowing in the local market? I think it is, yes. And I think that uh, at the moment it is very hard for the local market with the spreads where they are to attract any issuer, even a domestic, with which has tended to favour Australia. So... In terms of what you're seeing in the local market, um, have we seen any new issuance or or anybody trying to tap um, domestic markets? No. In fact, quite the opposite. The only issuance we've seen has actually been from uh, Canadians or a very small amount from Australian banks, but nothing in terms of issuers even talking of a market. But I have seen offshore issuance from pipeline issuers or such. So, Chris... Given um, that we've seen this action from offshore, do you think the RBA has kind of got a bit of a free ride off the back of what other central banks have done and that if um, there hadn't been some of those programs offshore that the RBA may need to have been more aggressive in our market? Yeah, I certainly think that's the case. You you kind of think about what John just mentioned there, that a, the corporates are actually looking overseas to do issuance. The ECB and the Fed have both said that they'd buy down to uh, sub-investment grade debt. So not only are they buying corporates, they're buying the lowest rated corporates. And I think that's really given some life back to the, the, the corporate debt markets, allowed people to issue again. And it kind of has given the RBA a bit of a free pass here because we've seen Telstra, we've seen Qantas starting to do insurance in different markets rather than locally. So it's definitely been helpful. Uh, yes, one of the things, Chris, that you might note also is the fact that the size they can do there, they can do 500 mil, but Australian corporate market has always been thin and so at the moment is even thinner. So size as well as uh, just ability to issue and spread are all compelling for, for offshore issuance rather than domestic. And I, I guess that's obviously one of the benefits of what the Fed has done. It's not just been about the US economy, it's also flowing into the rest of the world, which is positive, I guess, for us. Yes. Even if uh, issuers can't be bought by an ECB or by the Fed because they're not uh, local, they're still having a demand for credit amongst asset managers as well, which is being driven by the fact that there is this big buyer sitting there. And I guess one of the advantages to uh, Australian-issued bonds is that the yields are a little bit higher than some of our offshore uh, counterparts, so there is probably a yield advantage to some of the names in Australian dollars. In this environment, John, um, credit selection is probably as important as it's ever been. Blindly following a benchmark at at times of um, high levels of uh, credit stress, um, whether it be systematic or or, or idiosyncratic, what do we do in in this environment? And and, what sort of things are you looking at to sort of work through what's going to be good credits versus bad credits? Yeah, well, it is a complicated time. And I think at many times, people think you can almost avoid considering which credit to buy. So, you you know, you can buy the benchmark credits and just deal with it. But at the moment, you've really got to think through the problems and how what is essentially a scenario we have never faced in our lifetimes, this virus, how it can impact the different issuers. And so, for example, I've been looking at the REIT sector. Now, that's the real estate investment trust. So they're property trusts effectively. And one of the interesting things is how every issuer has its own little specialities and how also every sector has its own part. And we might think of property trusts as one sector, but in fact, 
there's three subsectors. There's the retail sector, they, so the shopping malls and such. Then there's the uh, office sector, and the office uh, sector is itself very different in nature. And then finally, there's the industrials or the logistic farms. Now, logistics is actually doing well because online shopping, the transfer of goods is getting to be more in demand, if anything. Whereas immediately shopping malls have suffered. So that part of the market has actually suffered quite a lot from lack of access or from reduced access and from many shops being closed. So that's again another weakness. And it's also weakened by the fact that many of the tenants are themselves suffering from the um, closures. So you get that problem. But interestingly enough, you can get a shopping centre manager who is looking more at the supermarket part of the market and is very much those sorts of properties which are supermarket anchored and is actually doing quite well. So it's no simple answer. What we do in our part of the process is actually consider each one. So the retail, we don't just look at every issuer as one. We look at each issuer and understand their own sensitivities. Then we get to the office sector and we say, well, that's another sector. There are going to be the A grade and the B grade offices, but and they will be different. If, as we suspect, this uh, virus has created a change in market, it could very well mean that when people come back from work, fewer people come back and office demand goes down. And then, as I say, you've got logistics, which works well. It's just an example, but that's what we do across the whole portfolio. We consider every single issuer and think, what are their exposures and what are their advantages? So, John, in terms of uh, seeing the future, obviously it's not possible, but what are the, the kinds of things you're, you're looking at in companies at the moment that would give you some sort of comfort around um, their ability to survive um, in, in this environment? Well, obviously, a good starting point is always a helpful. If they are well cashed up, if the management is understanding the issues and has reacted quickly, we, we've looked at uh, entities which are actually well under this sort of rating grades. And some of those have shown incredibly good management uh, and have managed to sort of close up and con- and control their costs over this period, whereas others have been perhaps more uh, slow to react. So it, it is going to look to management. It's going to look to the individual nature of their businesses. Some businesses are less exposed. I mean, if you're a telco, you might be thriving at the moment. So we look at all of these different issues and then work from there to try and work out what is a sensible uh, investment. But there is no simple answer. And we do have to revisit the whole time. So there is no, we don't have an answer which will last for all time. We have an answer which lasts for the moment. I I guess, John, just to follow on from that, one of the things that I've been thinking about is kind of, you look at the things obviously that, that would be doing now uh, quite well, like the telcos, but are we setting ourselves up here where there has been a rush to buy things, whether it's telecommunications or supermarkets, and then if this is a long drawn out process in terms of the economy going into recession, the things that people have rushed to might not have been the best places to look at? Well, they're the best at the moment in the sense that they are having a temporary thing. But I'd agree with your point. But you, and it comes back to my point about reassessing. We're not going to be able to say that 
what we have drawn out now is going to be the same strengths. And I think supermarkets is a very good example. There has been a lot of front loading of buying, and that may mean that supermarkets are not so much attractive. However, people still want to seem to want to go to the shopping centres. And so I noticed that Chadston was and mentioned as having a record week, or not a record, but a much improved time as soon as some freedom was given to visit. So I think we can actually look at that and say, maybe in the longer term, the retail REITs will have resilience. But at the moment, they are challenged. And you do need to consider, can they get to the point where they aren't being challenged? Yeah, certainly from my point of view, it's it's there's a lot of people talking about behavioural change um, and how this is going to affect people long term. But generally, people are social creatures and and they like to be around other people. And shopping malls we've seen over the last um, you know ten, twenty, thirty years have become a more and more popular place to go. So you you'd imagine that that behaviour isn't going to change in the long run. But I guess we just don't know that at the moment. Um, so it's one of the things that you know, we'll be keeping a good eye out for is how that behavioural impact is going to happen and what that's likely to do to various industries. Is there any um, sort of other industries you can think of where there may be changes in behaviour that could affect um, that sort of thing, John? think across the board, you might say that it's going to be a case. I mean, even transportation areas, will, will people be driving their cars to work more? Will there be issues like that? So our tollway is going to actually see an increased uh, demand in the time because we do have tollway issuers who are actually um, come to the Australian market. So you can think across any issue class and probably find examples. I think behaviour is very hard to estimate, but uh, it is, as you said, something which we do, we probably won't see as much changes, uh, some suspect, but probably there will be definitely changes. So speaking about uh, things that are close to uh, people's hearts, one of the things obviously we have a good uh, view on is, is mortgage markets um, and consumer credit markets. We're seeing potentially high unemployment, falls in um, prices uh, in property and other assets, uh, rents are, are struggling as well. Given these sorts of um, impacts that we're seeing, how, how do you see that playing out on the mortgage market and banking more broadly, John? Well, the mortgage market is challenged, and uh, one of the things we've always said is that high unemployment does threaten it. Now, this comes back to the question of how long this high unemployment level comes, and but probably the real thing people are talking about, particularly in terms of banks or in terms of RMBS, is the question of this payment deferral. How will banks cope with the fact that people aren't making their payments for a period. And how will uh, RMBS cope with it? Now, uh, Chris put out a piece, I think, a while back, which actually discussed the immediate impact of the uh, payment deferrals. But there is also the question of just how is it operating? What will happen at the end? And will this just create an arrears bucket at the end, which of us say six months? which could be very problematic. And having listened to a few issuers, every issuer is having different strategies. Some issuers are actually just saying, we'll, we'll talk about it all in six months. And one of the major banks I heard very recently just say, well, we'll do it in three-month sectors. Well, at th- after three months, we'll do it in 
assess the borrower and then come back for the next three months. Another issue where I heard said four months, two months. So everyone's doing it differently. But the question will be what really happens at the end? Will these people be able to get back on track? And will they, will we need to have them go into hardship categories? So all of this is problematic. But I think for the banks, one of the things to be take heart from is the fact that they are very well capitalized now. And they are not really under stress. They're just going, it, it wouldn't be good as a bank uh, equity holder because the performance will be bad. But from a credit position, these are still very stellar investments across the board. And again, on the other side, if you go back into the RMBS market, these structures are so, are so robust that this is the scenario which tests them, but I don't believe knocks them very far, particularly if you're at a senior level. And I can go into more detail if people are interested. It might be good for you to explain just quickly what RMBS is and when you say senior structures, what that means. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Well, an RMBS is a, it stands for residential mortgage backed securities. And essentially what you have is a collection of mortgages, which have been sold into a pool and the pool is used to fund different securities. Now, the reason we talk about senior securities and junior securities is the fact that the structure is works because certain pay, payments are devoted towards the senior tranches or parts of the structure first, so that effectively you have a a process of getting payments back from the senior tranches until such time as they are more or less protected. But more importantly, here, if there are losses, there the losses tend to be borne by the junior tranches. So, for example. If you were to look at a standard RMBS at issue, eight percent of the uh, the first eight percent of loss is borne by junior tranches or lower parts of the RMBS structure, and it's not until you get eight percent losses. Now, eight percent losses doesn't mean an eight percent decline in property values; it means an eight percent actual physical loss after sale of assets. It's not until you have that that you start threatening the senior tranches at the very beginning. Over time, this this level of 8% would move up because there's because the other parts of the structure are subordinated. So it gets to the point where you might have 16% losses before you actually get impacted. And it may sound 16% as possible, but I don't think even under the most severe situation that we would be seeing that sort of problem. Yeah, certainly they're designed to uh, withstand a depression uh, level event, um, which we're probably likely to experience something close to that over the next few months. But, um, you know, these structures are, are designed to withstand quite a, a large shock and you know, generally they're, they're a pretty good investment, but there'll be lots of uh, news flow on that particular market because mortgages tend to be very close to people's hearts and they're a very topical thing to talk about. But it's always good to sort of clarify exactly how these structures work and why they are a relatively good investment and why in some cases they're they're a very, very strong investment relative to other credit parts of the market. I'd agree with that, yeah. And I would emphasise the fact that there has been stories uh, or a story about one tranche, lower tranche being downgraded or being, or a future lower tranches being put on negative outlook. Now, being put on negative outlook or having a rating change isn't the same as default. And this is one of the key pro, uh, points about understanding 
credits, that there's two very separate things. There's the rating downgrade, and certain tranches of RMBS are facing that. And I, when I say certain, I mean a very limited number and very specialised, predominantly what we might be called in the US terminology, subprime mortgages are the only ones which at the moment have been discussed. But even if they are downgraded, it's not necessarily going to mean that you lose on the securities. It just means that over the time, the rating agency has less confidence that you won't lose. Now, default is a much worse thing because you're actually missing out on payment. And that is a concern. But the only other risk with ratings, and the reason that ratings are relevant, is that people do have constraints on what they can hold in terms of how low a rating you can hold. And one of the key things which has come up is questions of things being downgraded from, say, triple B minus to double B plus. And that is a risk which can mean that suddenly somebody has to sell and forced sellers can hit that quite severely. Very recently, it's not in the RMBS market, but very recently, Ford was downgraded. Ford is a very large issuer. And suddenly, we have what they call Ford as a fallen angel. And that has put a lot of pressure on the sub-investment grade market to absorb this very sudden amount of paper where there are forced sellers and people coming into the market. Now, the RMBS market is not going to be as big as that, and particularly that those tranches which are likely to move across rating grades, but it is still an area that can create problems for mandates. And one of the things that I always recommend to clients when I'm talking to them is that they have some flexibility in actually enabling you to hold off from selling at where there is such a downgrade, just because you're probably going to be selling with everybody else along at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly going to be a, a problem um, or a potential problem over the next few months where we, we have that risk of um, credits transitioning from investment grade to sub-investment grade, particularly in in um, products that are investment grade only. Um, and it's something that the market will have to deal with at one point in time. Hopefully with the um, central banks adding in some liquidity into markets, so that will actually uh, reduce that impact a little bit. But but yeah, certainly, definitely something to keep an eye out for uh, over the next couple of months. So, so Chris, um, was there any other uh, points of interest that you wanted to talk about today? I guess the the thing that is interesting from what John just mentioned in the banks and to put some perspective around when he's talking about deferrals of loans and, and people entering arrears, so far the major banks have seen, we've seen both NAB and Westpac report, and they've said that between the two of them, there's about 170,000 households who have needed payment deferrals. Quite interestingly, I think we've now seen the politicians start to change the messaging from social distancing to more how much this is starting to cost us. So we saw Josh Frydenberg today say being closed was costing us about $4 billion a week. And I thought it was interesting from the US recently that they said in certain states, if you don't go back to work, we're going to cut your unemployment benefits. So it looks like now that this disease is starting to get control, now we can debate just how much control they have over it at the moment. But the politicians and the policymakers are starting to get it into our heads that eventually we're going to have to go back to normal. Eventually, we've got to get back to work and help the economy improve. And I just find it very interesting how quickly that messaging is changing. Yeah, I think we also have to define what normal is versus um, perhaps just going back to work. Uh, normality seems a long way away at the moment um, without some sort of vaccination um, process. But yeah, I, I, I get your point. 
the the other thing that's going to be interesting too is the way people are viewing um, this whole deferral idea. That there seems to be some people that think that deferral means I don't have to pay at all, versus the you know, more reality that it's I have to pay it at some time in the future, and how much um, that's going to create problems of misunderstanding um, in the market. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I was talking to an issuer about this very uh, thing, and he, and I asked that very question about how much do people actually understand that they are not actually giving up. In fact, what they're doing is something which I haven't seen since the 1990s when FANMAC enabled us, and we are seeing uh, interest being capitalised. In other words, you're going to be paying interest on interest. Now, that's something which borrowers don't do need to be have explained to them and if it's not explained they're going to have another shock at the end of their payment deferral because they suddenly find their mortgage has grown not very substantially but substantially enough to make it a, a reconsideration and the comment from the issuer was yes well the people we're seeing who really need it they we, we they they get to understand it, but they still just have to take the deferral. But there are people who are trying it on as well, who have been a little more perhaps. Oh, we can defer, and perhaps this kind of information will deter them from being as keen to actually defer their payments. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a, a lot of other social issues that we we end up dealing with um, over the next couple of months. Some are obvious, other, others not so obvious, and a lot of it's around misunderstanding of how financial products work and and that type of thing. Um, you know, such as mortgages. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, something to keep an eye on over the next uh, few months. Given uh, what we've talked about in terms of what's happening in mortgage market, what's happening in general in, in credit markets, would you still be a happy buyer of mortgages at the moment? Well, but certainly at the senior levels, yes. I think that they've been priced out, they're attractive, and they are still really effectively AAA assets. So they've got a good quality to them. The protections which exist in the structure, plus the support which we're seeing from regulators, I mean, we've had a lot of involvement from the AOFM to support this, this sector. It is recognised as an important part of our whole market. And yeah, I would say it's a sector that can offer good value. Well, that's uh, it from us this month. Um, I'd like to thank John for joining us and, and hope that you found his insights informative. If you have any feedback or questions, feel free to email us at the rate debate at nicoam.com and we look forward to cover them in our upcoming episodes. We regularly publish comment, which some of it has been discussed today, which you can find on our website at nicoam.com.au. So tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's June rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. This podcast was prepared by Nico AM Limited, ABN 9900337625 AFSL number 237563. It is of a general nature only and does not constitute personal advice or an offer of any financial product. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any individual. Any references to particular securities or sectors are for illustrative purposes only and this is not a recommendation. Any economic or market forecasts are not guaranteed.